You are listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Good evening, everyone. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Book of Enoch just to introduce it, and then we're going to be talking about one of the the earliest or one of the earliest books in First Enoch, which is the Book of the Watchers. So let's talk about the Book of Enoch. What is the Book of Enoch? The Book of Enoch is actually a collection of books, and we had a discussion about this last time. Is this just some kind of fancy source criticism that says it's different books? No. If you read through Enoch, you will very clearly see that these are different books that have different endings and introductions to the next one. These are separate books. Now, there are also, when you do a scholarly study of Enoch, of course, and we're going to see that tonight, there are places where people say, oh, here there's something else woven in. Or here actually, you know, and then then you're talking more about kind of textual criticism, source criticism. But in terms of the Book of Enoch being a collection of works, that is pretty much undisputed. It's very clear. It's also fairly clear that these works are from different time periods. One of the works might not even be Jewish. Okay, that's the Parables of Enoch. That's in fact the only one of these works which doesn't have any fragments that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, and it was the one book where there were serious suspicions of it not being Jewish. Okay, mainly because uh, it, it uses the Son of Man figure. I kind of tend to think that it probably is not Christian because the Son of Man is Enoch in the end. And we don't see this real, you know, tradition of, oh yeah, Jesus is Enoch kind of thing. And Christians, when they did interpolations, they usually knew how to say, and that's, you know, Christ Jesus, whatever, however they would say it, right? They weren't usually very subtle about it. And in the parables of Enoch, the Son of Man, it turns out is Enoch himself. So, it depends on whether you count. Let's let's just go quickly. This is why I have. This is not me cheating because I wrote this, right? But I don't always. <laughs> I don't. I don't always remember these things by heart. The whole thing is not by me. I just did the commentary on Enoch. This is outside the Bible. It's three volumes. This is volume two. It's actually right here in the library downstairs, and it is a tremendous resource. I mean, I use it all the time. Unfortunately, it's very expensive. So um, you can use it here. I highly recommend it. What it is is essentially a translation and commentary of pretty much what they tried for it to be. I'm, not, I'm sure there's some works that didn't make it in. Was for it to be all the books outside the Bible that are part of it, including Dead Sea Scrolls, including Pseudepigrapha, Apocrypha, all these external works in translation and with commentaries. Now, the translations, you have to be careful because the translations are usually taken from fairly old translations because they are not expensive to get the rights to. Uh, the commentaries are frequently by big scholars, not including me. I just, I just kind of slid in, right? But you have some major, major scholars who did the commentaries on different works. So it's well worth the look. I can't say it's well worth the purchase again because it's very expensive. But They're not all complete though, right? The complete text of the book. It depends which one. So for example, in mine, the parables of Enoch are excerpted, right? That was because, I'll let you into a little secret, that was because they gave me a crazy deadline. And I was just starting out, I was a little baby scholar, and I didn't understand that academic deadlines are completely false. And I was going crazy trying to meet this deadline. And I was doing a, a, a postdoc and people with me saying, Miriam, they don't mean that it's got to be done by November or something like that. And I'm like, no, no, no. They say it has to be done by then. And I actually, so it was maybe a month later, two months And I'm like, look, and I said to them, listen, I can't do all the parables in this given amount of time. I'm going to have to cut some stuff out. And then, of course, 
they didn't need it till like months later. They were kind of maybe looking at it. It's too bad because if I had known the real deadline, I would not have done an excerpt of the parables. On the other hand, if I had known the real deadline, it would have taken much more time because, you know, these things always fill the time that you have. But so I'm gonna, going to um, just give you a very quick overview of what the books are. So we have what we're talking about tonight is the Book of the Watchers, which is chapters 1 to 36. Okay, so we have the Book of the Watchers, and that's uh, possibly one of the earliest books that say to around, dated to maybe as early as like 250 BCE. Jubilees is clearly based on it. In other words, the story of the Watchers and Jubilees is clearly taking stuff from Enoch and putting it together. You have the Parables of Enoch, which is chapters 37 to 71. We have the Astronomical Book, which actually in its Ethiopic form. Well, this is something I did not say. I said it last time, but I'll repeat it. Um, how do we have First Enoch? First Enoch was written in, in Aramaic, translated into Greek, of course, and then translated into Ethiopic. Like Jubilees, First Enoch survived in its entirety because it became part of the Ethiopian church's scripture. So there are actually many, many, many copies of First Enoch in Ethiopia. Um, I'll repeat this because not everyone was here last time. Uh, Lauren Stuckenbrook, who is trying to create a critical edition of Enoch, is going to Addis Ababa. He goes there all the time. I don't know where he's at with a critical edition. I haven't checked it in the last few months, I guess. But there are many, many copies of this because it's part of the scripture. Okay. So are the, uh, the original Greek and Aramaic being lost? We have some Greek of the Book of the Watchers, from what I remember. Okay, so we have we have the astronomical book. The astronomical book in its Ethiopian form is very, very corrupted, which you can understand because it's all this weird astronomical stuff. But we have an Aramaic version that we found that we can kind of reconstruct it with. So usually you'll talk about the Aramaic astronomical book of Enoch as reflecting some the original. We have the Aramaic? Uh, uh, yeah, we have the Aramaic fragments from Qumran. Uh, not, not completely. Uh, no, no. But there's been a lot of work done on those Aramaic fragments. We have the dream visions, where we have two dream visions that Enoch says to his son, Metushelach. We have, it includes the animal apocalypse, the whole history of the world in animals. Don't worry, we will get to that. We will talk about that in length because it's so fun and bizarre. We have the Epistle of Enoch, which includes a short section, which is based on an independent narrative regarding Noach's birth, where Noach's described as this messianic figure whose birth fills the room with light, much like the Midrash describes whose birth? Moshe. Moshe's oh. birth. Oh, and, and also Noach in um, the Genesis Apocrypha. Oh, uh, the Genesis Apocrypha, but that's yeah. not Midrash, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. We actually have different texts from the Second Temple period that reflect how popular Noah was as a figure, right? It's kind of this messianic figure almost, okay? And first, Enoch ends with another book which Enoch wrote, which is chapter 108. Like, that's chap- it's just a chapter, and it's got a title, Another Book Which Enoch Wrote. So it's a bunch of books. We'll get into each one of them as this class continues. Some of them will not get a whole class because there are a lot of them, but we are going to talk about what each one centers on and the ideas it reflects and its time period. Okay, so... Let's start with Book of the Watch. So now we're in the Book of the Watchers. This is how the, the first Enoch begins. It's, again, dated 250 to 200 BCE. There has to be enough time for Jubilees to be based on it, okay? If we date Jubilees to 160 BCE or maybe earlier, so we need that gap. But before we begin the Book of the Watchers... Are yeah. these fragments thought to be among the oldest of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Which fragments? Fragments uh, that relate to the, of Enoch. But, uh... The fragments of Enoch? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I can look again, but I don't think that the date. I mean, obviously, this is a this is a 
final date for me. Like, it can't be later than that. But you don't, because Enoch is generally, especially the book of the Watchers, is thought to be so early. 250 BCE is really early, much earlier than the Dead Sea community, right? So it's not thought, you know, no one uses the Dead Sea Scrolls to say, well, it's got to be earlier than that. As opposed to, let's say, Jubilees, where the fact Although that... would they, if any of the individual parts of it were written later. Right, right, right. Then you can use, talk about the different parts of it, exactly. We'll, we'll talk about the different parts of it and the dating as we move on. Okay, so why was Enoch such a popular figure? Here we have all these different little books. They're all put together into one, but they have at, as common that they've got Enoch as a character somehow. Why was he so popular? And this is why I brought... Yes. What's with that? He walks with God. That's right. Not only does he walk with God, but it's very possible. Let's read the Pasuk together. Okay. Right? He lives 65 years and he has. And he walked with God after he had Metushalach, 300 years, and he had boys and girls. So all the days of Hanoch were 365 years, and he walked with God, and he was no longer where he wasn't there, because God took him. Now, in the Second Temple period, it's very possible that the way they would read, and I'm purposely saying it this way, Elohim, they would read it as angels, like B'nai Elohim. The the angels took him. Like, how could God take someone? God's In the Second Temple period in general, there's a a movement towards distancing of God, right? God is so great. What can we actually, what we actually have access to is angels. So you can even see this at the beginning of the second temple period. If you look at Zechariah's prophecy, right? Zechariah's prophecy is getting visions through angels, right? Instead of having God talk to him directly. So there's right, angels showing him this, angels showing him that. He's kind of hiding. Blah, blah. You know, it's not the same thing as, you know, oh, God took me and told me this. So there's already this distancing. So it's very possible that the way they were reading it was the angels took him. Either way, either way, the question is, why did they take him? Or why did God take him? And what did he see when he was up there? Yes. Is there a grammatical problem reading that as angels? It should be Lakul to Elohim. Yeah, I think you could also read it in two ways. You could say, and Hanoch walked with angels because God took him. Even though, as we'll see in Enoch, it sounds a lot more like angels took him. In other words, it seems like they're interpreting it as angels took him. You're right that grammatically it doesn't work if, unless you unless you interpret the Elohim there in two different ways, right? But so there are two things that are interesting. First of all, why in the world would either God or the angels take him? We don't have that explanation. And the other is, what did he see? What did he see when he was up there? This is a period when they're very interested in, yes. Isn't very, it this sort of sense that... Oh, wait, just let me finish. Okay, okay. Very interested in the cosmic, kind of cosmic realities. They're interested in astronomy. They're interested in the heavens. They're interested in what we consider maybe mysticism, right? Angels. What are the angels doing? How many angels are there? What are they in charge of? All these things. This possibly is due to the Persian period, right? In the Persian period, this is when this kind of interest in angels really grows, and we see very much in Enoch. Isn't it, does it seem that what God does and what the angels do are interchangeable? Like, not at this point, because 
I actually, I don't think I brought it here, but like they, they give different angels and this angel's in charge of this and this angel's in charge of that. So you're already in this period, whereas before you say, okay, there's God and maybe angels are doing little things. But here, you know, you need a, an angel who's in charge of thunder, an angel who's in charge of rain, an angel who's in charge of uh, angels who are in charge of all these things. And we saw this already last week in Jubilees, where you need to have angels who are in charge of all this stuff. Now, the idea is they're not interchangeable with God, again, because you can't reach God anymore. You can't go up. No one would think the way they might think in the, in, in the ancient Near East, right? I mean, for the original audience of the Bible, it would not be that weird for someone to say, oh, yeah, this guy had an encounter with God, right? It wouldn't be that strange for them to, to think that. Whereas in the Second Temple period, it would be strange. They'd be like, an encounter with God? God, really? There are all these angels in between him and God, right? I thought he was dead. I mean, like they took, God took him and he's dead and we don't hear from him again. But it, it, it doesn't say that. That's not, it doesn't say that. It, it doesn't say that. So he came back. He's the only one in the list that it doesn't say that. Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't say he died. So we don't know. Now, I also want to point something out. How long does he live? Oh, the same number of days. 365 years. So that was another reason for people to connect him to astronomical calculations and calculations of the year and the calendar, etc. Okay. Now, so what we're going to read is one of the books of Enoch, essentially, right, that, that are included in the book of Enoch, the first Enoch. And what the book of the Watchers really centers on is the story of the Watchers. The story of the Watchers is based on a few verses in the Bible, uh, which people frequently forget, except for people who do Second Temple stuff, in which case it's in our minds all the time. Okay, and that's Genesis 6, 1 to 4, this Breshid Vav, Aleph Dalad, and you have it here right in front of you. And when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and they had daughters. And the Bnealhim, whoever they are, right, see the daughters of man that they are good. And they took whatever wives they wanted. Okay. And here we have this kind of thing that is kind of a non sequitur. It doesn't exactly fit. God said, my, my spirit will not, perhaps will not dwell forever on man, but because he is also flesh. Again, the Bishagam. I'm, I, the Bishagam is a problem to translate. Yadon is a problem to translate. But let's go with this, okay? Since he is also flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Hanifilim hayubaretz In those days, the Nifilim were on or in the land. The Gamachrechan, and afterwards also. Asher yavob bnei Elohim obnot hadam veliyodulahem. That which the bnei Elohim came to the daughters of man, and they gave birth to them. They are the heroes who were from, from were evermore these people of fame. Now, if we take this story and we take it out of its context, what does it seem to explain? Well, one possibility of what it explains is it explains all those mythical figures you've been hearing about. Again, if you're talking about, let's say, an ancient Near Eastern audience, who you you heard, you've heard about Danel, you've heard about Gilgamesh, you've heard about all these great heroes. They were very strong, they were very smart, they were very wise, and you think that they're demigods, they're not. 
Okay. Yes, there's something divine in them, but they can only live 120 years because God says so. Okay. And they're like regular people. They're with people. They only live 120 years. Okay. That could be an explanation of this in its context, without outside of its context. In its context, though, it comes right before what? The, the, the flood, right? It comes right before the flood. So it's not surprising. It's not surprising that anyone reading or listening to this in its context would say, this thing that happened somehow had something to do with the flood and the corruption that precedes the flood. Because right afterwards, it says, Hashem ki Right afterwards, it says God sees that the evil of man on the land is great. So it's a natural thing to say, okay, one apparently led to the other. Here you have angels mating with men or nail him, which seem to be divine beings. They're mating with men. Bad news. Clearly, right afterwards, you have the flood. Okay. Even though it's, there's no direct causality said, stated. Okay. And who are these Nephilim? Now, again, if you read, if you're, if you're super literal and you read the psukim of that I called the watchers, they're not called the watchers yet, obviously, until it's translated, right? Until it's uh, interpreted. Psukim of the verses of B'nai Elohim and B'not Adam, if you're being super literal, okay, who are the Nephilim? It doesn't say that the Nephilim are the descendants. I'm just pointing this out because sometimes people point this out, right? The Nephilim, it says the Nephilim were in the land in those days and also afterwards. In other words, you could say, you know what? It has nothing to do with the Nephilim. This is this telling you when it happened. It happened when the Nephilim were around. The Nephilim are supposed to be this ancient race of giants. And it's telling you that this happened when the Nephilim were around. However, almost everyone reads it as, who are the kids? The kids are Nephilim, right? And who are the Nephilim? Does it say here anything about giants? I just want to point it out so you don't, you know... It doesn't say here anything about any of these children being giants. It says these are the heroes or the strong, strong men, right? But... We know in Bamidbar, it says, when the spies go, right? It says, mm-hmm. And there we saw the Nephilim, the, the giant people of the Nephilim. And we were in their eyes like beetles. We were in our own eyes like beetles. And so we were in their eyes, right? Because they're so humongous. Now, I'd like to point out here that in this pasuk, it's very clear that the person who's reading the audience for this pasuk is not necessarily supposed to know what Nephilim are until they're explained. Because it says, we saw the Nephilim, the giant people from the Nephilim. In other words, you you need this explanation, right? You wouldn't automatically know who the Nephilim are, but they're supposed to be this ancient people of giants, okay? Are they giants or are some of them giants? It's not clear, right? But but it sounds like the point is that these are giants who are descended of the Nephilim. That the Nephilim are supposed to be this ancient race. There's, they are mentioned elsewhere. It's like, oh, this is the Nephilim lived in the land you know, before da da da. So it's these these giants who came out of the Nephilim. Stupid question. Uh, wouldn't they be wiped out in the flood? They're giants, like they stand above the water. Yeah, right. Um, so so this is this is a, a question. So this is in in here you could say, well, that's a good question. How do the Nephilim manage? If they're in, if we know the Nephilim were there before the flood, and here they're talking about the Nephilim after the flood, you weren't there to ask them, and so they don't answer. We don't have an answer. They don't have an explanation. No one's thinking. They just know these guys are from the Nephilim. Okay? So let's now go to the book of Enoch itself. They made Rashim about that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, they say, they say, yeah, Og holds on to the side of the ship, right? That's what he does. He holds on to the side of the ship, and so he manages it. 
No, no, he no. just has to do just while the just the flood. Days, yeah, but then, but then he, lasts, he lasts. He uh, lasts. And then he lasts because he's a giant. <laughs> Yo, you're already a giant. See, you last. <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> but that that's yeah, that's that's one of the. Sefer Breshit already says that they were after the flood. Says the Gamachareichem. Well, says and also afterwards. Yeah. And also afterwards. So the question is, how long is this supposed to be happening before the flood? Is it right before the flood? What's the story? Is it, does it mean, and also afterwards, after they had these children, right? What does it mean afterwards? I agree with you. I think that afterwards means way afterwards. I think it means like long after. And also, they, they were ancient people that continued on for a long time. That's so, what I think. So, so that's just, you know. The fact that for, for, I always read Nathileim and Giborim as Right, so it's not the right. So you could read it that way. Look, almost everyone reads it that way, right? Almost everyone reads it saying, "What does it mean that you're talking about Nephilim? You must mean that they're the children." But if you're being really specific and literal, that's not actually what it says, right? So I'm not going to start. It could be what it's saying, but it could be what it's saying. The word "acher" might mean. And that—that's who they were. They were the product of this of these unions. If you say you say it could be that all it's saying is it's not a share. It's, it's also, before right? that share it says Hanifilim Nifilim were in the land in those days. So that's why it's easy for some interpretations afterwards to seem to think that the Nifilim are the angels because they fell right. You know, the angels were in there because you don't have to say that the Nephilim were the descendants, mm-hmm. but but yeah, but 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 most people do see the Nephilim as being being synonymous with the children, certainly in, in the interpretation of the second temple period. Okay, and now let's actually let's get to it. I, I brought you first in the book of Enoch, I brought you some verses of introduction just so you would kind of see how it places the book. The words of the blessing of Enoch, according to which he blessed the chosen and righteous who must be present on the day of distress, which is appointed for the removal of all wicked and impious. In other words, we're starting off with, okay, guys, there's an apocalypse that's going to come. And Enoch's kind of message is chosen for the righteous who are going to survive it. And Enoch answered and said, there was a righteous man whose eyes were opened by the Lord, and he saw a holy vision in the heavens, which the angels showed to me. And I heard everything from them, and I understood what I saw, but not for this generation. In other words, not for Enoch's generation, right? But for a distant generation, which will come. In other words, our generation, right? In other words, he's writing this now, and we're supposed to believe Enoch is writing or dictating it in his time, but only we are going to understand and get it. Only we in the second double period. Yes, and you see how it breaks down pretty quickly, right? Because there was a righteous man whose eyes were opened, and that was me, right? Yeah. And I'm not differing the rest of the introduction. The introduction's talking about contemplate, contemplate the trees, contemplate. But I, let's move on to the watchers and the good stuff. All right. And it came to pass, when the sons of men had increased, that in those days there were born to them fair and beautiful daughters. Now, note how close this is to the biblical text, okay? Except that fair and beautiful translates what? Anyone want to look back? Fair and beautiful daughters as opposed to good. Good. Everyone knows what good means for women. They're fair and beautiful. Okay. And the angels, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. So it's explained that sons of heaven, but him means the angels. And they said to one another, come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the children of men and let us beget for ourselves children. So now there's already an, a, a little bit of an explanation. Instead of just choosing them for wives, because they wanted them, they want children. And Shemichaza, who was their leader, they, of the, these angels who made it with women, okay, who was their leader, said to them, I fear that you may not wish this deed to be done. 
that I alone will pay for this great sin. And they all answered him and said, let us all swear an oath and bind one another with curses, not to alter this plan, but to carry out this plan effectively. In other words, their big plan is to have kids, right? And they took wives for themselves and everyone chose for himself one each. That's the, they chose what they wanted, right? They're saying, well, they chose one each. That's what they're saying, okay? You understand that that's interpretation? They're monogamous, I mean, because that's, that's, you know, it's, it's pointing out that you should be, but... Time, right? <laughs> 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 we, we yeah, 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 God, yeah. Right? The, the Midrash is that the angels can only do one thing at a time, but I don't think it's one of, that's what it meant. What's his fear? I fear, what's his fear? He's, he knows what he's doing. In this setup, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's like, let's all go and do this. I don't want it just to be on me. If the anger is going to come, I want it to be on all of us. I want you all binding an oath that we're all in this together. They all go in on it, and they go, and they take wives to have children, right? So the idea is that God doesn't want them to do this? Yes. The idea is that they already know. We don't know how they know, okay? But they already know this is not what they should be doing. At least they suspect that it might be right. Right. At least they suspect. At least they suspect. He's already calling it a great sin, right? Now, what we'll see is that this... This, okay, this Enoch is early for us, but it's drawing from different traditions of the watchers. I will tell you right now, okay? There's a lot of Greek here. Huh? Oh, you want me to bring the Greek? No, 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 it sounds like the Greek here, right? I mean, it sounds like a setup for some Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're they're absolutely, uh, those who think that, they also absolutely think that, that, that they're, you know, there's the, the myth of the Titans. There's all sorts of things. There's, frankly, if you want to go back to Ugaritic stuff, which is way too early, I, I would love to find a real connection because the birth of the gracious gods, which is an Ugaritic myth, has actually connections to this, which I will tell you in a second, which I can't really say anything about because there's such a big gap in time between the two. But this, this idea of giants that cause damage absolutely is, you know, it sounds holistic and, and, and let's all go, let's, so, but let me just say something before we continue. So what we're going to see is, let's say, uh, uh, two main traditions and the third smaller tradition woven in. Okay. So you have this, the idea that the sin of the watchers is mating with women. Okay. There's another sin we're going to come across, which is revealing forbidden knowledge. Okay. Wait, the watchers are the okay. No, the watchers are the angels. Okay. Why are they called the watchers? And in fact, we have this translation early on in Enoch. They translate um, Benalim and as w- the watchers. Why do they translate the watchers? We're not a hundred percent sure, but we think it's because it's a translation of Irin, right? Irin, meaning and that and seeing it as them being awake all the time, right? Angels don't sleep; they're awake all the time. They're the watchers. Okay, that's a hypothesis because we don't actually have the, the we do have angels being called Irim. I, I can't do the Ayan right. Irim, right? Okay. Yeah. It's fun for all of us. But there's um, these are the, yes. I, I'm, so I'm a little confused yeah. because we have angels which are Elohim. But there's also okay, so, Elohim. Okay, yeah, no, no. So let's let's do this. You don't have to accept what I said about Elohim, the understanding it as angels. I, I think they do just because of the way they talk about Enoch. Okay, but you can put that aside. You don't have to accept that. What is very clear is that in Breshid Vav, in Genesis 6, they understand Bnei Elohim as angels. Okay, that's very clear. Then, Those are again, angels. Again, again, this is, because of this is somewhere in the Second Temple period, looking yeah. back and putting it in that way, right? Oh, well, yeah, sure. I mean, Bnei Elohim to angels is not much of a stretch. I mean, the question is, what would you, if you're going to say... If no, you're no, going, for, for the Second Temple, right? Because it was always... I mean, okay. my, this is my, second my, my temple source, period. My source tells me that my source, you know who my source yeah, is? Yeah, yes. 
says that, that these angels in the Second Temple period were somehow were the demigods who got sort of re, who were, got a demotion. That's how that's what happened to them in the Second Temple period. But that's uh, you have you what well, it's here is really it's 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 pretty clear what's going on in this story. Okay, you've got a biblical text. You've got these nail him right. What nail him? Where if you if your source. Wants to say that they're demigods, that right? They're, they're, me- they're mean. Bnei him in its in its most literal meaning is divine beings, just the way Bnei Nevi'im are those who belong to the guild of prophets. They're they, they're not the children of prophets. They're people who belong to the class of prophets. Bnei him are beings that belong to the class of the divine. Right, so we can see them as angels. Now, of course, you have the Jewish tradition that they are judges. We have the Christian tradition that they're the children of Seth, which actually comes to the is in the Kuzari. Also, it makes its way to us through the <coughs> Kuzari. But if we're going to be literal, okay, they seem to, they're talking about divine beings. Now, that's not a big stretch to angels. I mean, really, that's 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 not this huge leap of interpretation. And they call angels now in these translations usually the watchers usually mean specifically these angels who sinned, but not not exclusively. Usually they mean the angels who sinned, but sometimes just regular angels are called watchers. So that seems to be a name for angels, but specifically, most specifically, these angels who sinned. So okay. angels have free will and they can be disobedient to... With, here they, here and... they sure can, okay? So again, different traditions. We're going to see them very quickly, all right? Just give you a preview, okay? Tradition of the sin was mating with women. Another tradition, the sin was revealing forbidden knowledge to women and thereby to man. Another smaller tradition that's woven in is they revealed magic and secrets. Okay, let's take a look. All right, so and Shemichaza said that let's swear an oath. And they took wives for themselves and everyone chose for himself one each. And they began to go into them and were promiscuous with them. And they taught them charms and spells. That's the other, the third tradition. They thought, taught them charms and spells and showed... women charms? Yeah. And showed to them the cuttings of roots and trees. This second half of the verse is supposed to be from this third tradition of teaching them magic. Okay? And they became pregnant and bore large giants. And their height was 3,000 cubits. These devoured all the toil of men until men were unable to sustain them. I, I say I want to connect this to the Ugaritic myth, because that's what happens to the Ugaritic myth. The god El mates with these two women. They have giants. The giants start devouring everything. So you kind of really want to connect it. And you can't, because there are too many years between them. Still dying to do it. Okay. But again, um, it couldn't have been a... It could have been absolutely. It could be a, a, a it could be a, a continuing story. It could be some kind of deep stuff of nightmares that we all have, you know, and so it keeps coming up. Um, okay, so they took wives and promiscuous <laughs> with them. Once them, they taught them charms and spells, bad news, and the cutting of roots and trees. And these women, they became pregnant and bore large giants, and their height was three thousand cubits. These devoured all the toil of men until men were unable to sustain them. And the giants turned against them in order to devour men. In other words, after they eat all the stuff, they start eating men. And they began to sin against birds and against animals and against reptiles and against fish. And they devoured one another's flesh and drank the blood from it. Then the earth complained about the lawless ones. Okay, the earth is crying out from the tremendous lawlessness that's happening from these giants. Yeah. The, the, the sinning against the animals. Does that mean bestiality? Does that mean eating them? Because that's what they just. I, I, I don't. I don't think it's clear. I don't think it's clear. 
And and yeah, I yeah. think it's it's supposed to be a precursor to why does the flood have to destroy all the animals, right? Because the whole they're corrupting the entire earth, right? Exactly what it means isn't clear. Yeah, the midrashim is that that, that there's bestiality, and that's why the animals have to be have to be destroyed. Everything's the yes. I mean, the, 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 clearly drinking the blood in particular, drinking the blood is is particularly bad. Even though the commandment, they haven't gotten the commandment yet, right? Drinking blood is really bad, and it's clearly meant to be even more disgusting. And they're eating each other. Cannibalism is always bad, right? And then the earth complained about the loss. Right? I don't think it's physically possible and that, to commit bestiality with birds and reptiles. <laughs> are you a giant? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, and fish. Like, it's not clear what that means they began to sin against. And, and of course, it's very hard to know because we're working from, we right now are working from an English translation of an Ethiopic translation of a Greek translation of the Aramaic. So you don't know how much has changed in between. And Asael taught men now, and now we get Again, again, two major sins, two major sins. First one, sleeping with wives, right? And now we have, that was Shemikaza and his group, right? And they also taught the magic while they were at it. Now we're going to have another angel's busy sitting, right? And Asael taught men to make swords and daggers and shields and breastplates. And he showed them the things after these and the art of making them, bracelets and ornaments and the art of making up the eyes and of beautifying the eyelids and the most precious and choice stones and all kinds of colored dyes. And the world was changed and there was great impiety and much fornication and they went astray and all their ways became corrupt. In other words, Asael shows men how to wage war. He shows women, women how to make, put on makeup and lead men astray, right? The eyeshadow is what does it. And the, and this is enough to really cause the whole world to become, all these men to become corrupt. What makes you say he's teaching the women to do? To he's teaching makeup. the women to put on makeup, yes. Where does it say that? Oh, here it just says it taught. I do think there is a version that says he taught the women. Okay. But you're right that here, but it, it, it seems pretty clear that what he's doing is he's teaching the men to wage, to wage you know, things that they're going to need. And at the same time, at the same time, what he's teaching them, he's not saying go wage war. He's like, oh, this is how you make a spear. Right? This is a good thing to know. Good thing to know, right? Yes. Is there a fragment of that, that part in Aramaic? Because the prone the prone I don't think so, yeah. would be male or female. Right. I, I don't I don't think so. I can look more into it and see. Maybe we have that in Greek. I'll look. Okay. Asael's an angel. Asael's an angel, right? Another right. one of the group. Another one of not Shemikaz's group. He's doing his own thing. And Enoch's, the Book of the Watchers is actually going to be pretty consistent about keeping them separate, right? They do different things. They get punished separately. And then Michael, Gabriel, Suriel, and Uriel, four angels, four good angels, looked down from heaven and saw the mass of blood that was being shed on the earth and all the iniquity that was being done on the earth. And they said to one another, let the devastated earth cry out with the sound of their cries unto the gate of heaven. And now to you, O holy ones of heaven, the souls of men complain, saying, bring our suit before the most high. This is a traditional job of angels from the second temple period on, including in rabbinic literature, that angels bring prayers to God. Right? This is a job of theirs, right? Is that because they were veiled or not necessarily? No, I don't think I don't I don't think so. I, I think that the author just thinks that, you know, that that's really what leads men astray. I, I also don't know. I mean, I would assume they had lipstick then also. Yeah, they must have had lipstick. They had tons of makeup in those days. But I, I guess when makeup also or makeup what? in those days. I think men did wear makeup, but I don't think that's what's going on here because I don't think men's makeup is leading anyone into fornication. Never know. Okay. I want more like and, more paint. I guess probably, right? Huh. 
It's, but here it's clearly beautifying. It's beautifying the eyelids. It's making them beautiful, right? So anyway, then these angels are calling and they're like, oh, and they go to God and they see, see then what Azazel has done, how he has taught all iniquity on the earth. That's Asael, right? Okay. Asael, uh, Asael. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so first of all, everyone knows. So here they're the same, right? And in fact, when in the Gemara, when it says, what does this mean? Why do you give, why do you have the seer la Azazel, right? Why do you have the goat that goes to Azazel? And there's an opinion that says it's for the, the ma'aseh Uzzah va'azael. It's for what was done by Uzzah and Azael. And Rashi Azazel. there. Azael is opposed to Azael? There it's explaining Azazel. It's not going to go back to Azael. So that's a, that's a, Gemara? I think it's the Yalkut Shimon. No, I think it's in Yoma. Yeah. I think so. Someone gave it to me about this. And told me, Someone did. Is that you? No? Okay. Anyway, I heard something. <laughs> someone. someone did it. Is there thought to be a connection? Someone. I don't know. I can't yeah, what, is there thought to be a connection between Asael and Azazel? Uh, yes. Yes. In other words, in other words, again, Uzzah and Azazel, and then Rashi says... He says, oh yeah, this is the nail him of Notada. And he, what, what Rashi says is, it's against the sins of fornication, right? In other words, Rashi says, what this Gemara is talking about, the action of Uzzah and Azael, is referring to Bnei him of Notada, but what it means is that you send out the Seir Azazel, the goat to Azazel, in order to repent for sins having to do with, with illicit fornication. Just to refresh my memory, yes. is there any reference in the Mikra? To Asael, Michael, Gabriel. Okay, Asael, no. Michael and Gabriel make their appearance, I believe. Isn't it? Aren't they in no, Daniel? Daniel? Yeah. In Daniel. in Daniel, not Suriel. As as angels? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? So they get their names relatively late, right? Is it so, possible that the rabbis edited them out? Edited names of angels out of the Torah? No. I no. It yeah. might have been. Out of Tanakh? No, no, you have things in the Gemara about these angels. Michael, in particular, is supposed to be a very important angel, right? But in terms of Tanakh, you don't have named angels until you get to really late works, right? Because who cares, right? And they don't start caring about named angels and having angels with specific jobs until you get into the Second Temple period. So they go and they say, see what Azazel has done, how he has taught all iniquity on the earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were made in heaven. And Shemichaza has made known spells. He too, so in other words, now they're, they're listening to different sins, right? Asael taught iniquity on the earth. In other words, it wasn't secret knowledge, but it was a kind of forbidden knowledge because it caused sin. But he did reveal the eternal secrets which were made in heaven. We don't know what that means. Shemichaza has made known spells, right? That's the other bad thing, to whom you gave authority to rule over those who are with him. And they went into the daughters of men together. They also had illicit sex and lay with those women and became unclean and revealed to them these sins. And the women bore giants, and thereby the whole earth has been filled with blood and iniquity. And now behold, the souls which have dried cry out and complain to the gate of heaven, and their lament is ascended, and they cannot go out in the face of the iniquity. And you know everything before it happens, they say to God. And you know this, and what concerns each of them. But you say nothing to us. Just give us the order, right? What ought we to do with them about this? And then the Most High, the Great and Holy One spoke. Okay, so then God, first of all, says, send to Noah, the son of Lamech is Noah, right? And said to him, say to him in my name, hide yourself and reveal to him the end which is coming for the whole earth will be destroyed. In other words, in this story, it's very clear. The flood is the result of all the whole mess that the angels have been doing on the earth, okay? But the humans haven't done anything wrong. Ah, ah. 
So what's going on? So the assumption is that they have actually caused corruption. Now, in, in Jubilees, it's much, much clearer. In Jubilees, it says, you know, how they caused corruption. But here, the assumption is that they've caused corruption. It still seems like kind of a nasty way to answer the cries of the dead. Right? Oh, well, now we're going to just destroy the earth. Okay? And you're also going to see that actually the angels and the giants are punished separately from this flood. Okay, so what does God say to Raphael? Further, the Lord said to Raphael, bind Azazel by his hands and his feet and throw him into the darkness and split open the desert, which is in Dutael, and throw him there and throw him on jagged and sharp stones, etc., etc., etc. And restore the earth which the angels have ruined and announce the restoration of the earth. For I shall restore the earth so that not all the sons of men shall be destroyed through the mystery of everything which the watchers may know and talk to their sons. In other words, why do I have to restore the earth? Because this stuff that they taught them is going to just ruin everything. So we've got to destroy it. And the whole earth has been ruined by the teaching of the works of Azazel. And against him write down all sin. Okay? So Azazel, punished. Right? Now punishment of the giants. So what do they do? He essentially says, he says, proceed against the bastards. Why are they bastards? Because they're the result of an illicit mating between angels and human women. Right? And remember that in Jewish thought and halakha, a mamzer is the result of an illicit coupling. Right? Not, not a, not a child born out of wedlock. In fact, a child born out of wedlock is rarely a, a mamzer, but a mamzer is rather the child of a, an illicit coupling. Like Pissarro, for example. So I always, I always drop that in. Pissarro, Pissarro's mother married her nephew, her nephew by marriage. And, uh, his mother was actually an Orthodox Jew. His mother was like a believer, and she really didn't like it when he married the French maid. But Pissarro was actually a halakhic mamzer. Yeah. Really? Yes, that's something I just always drop whenever I can because it's interesting. Yes. <laughs> Did he uh, tempt her? Did, yeah. No. Uh, look, she was his his father was sent to help out his his mother was widowed and they sent her nephew. They said his mother was widowed and here's this young widow out in the I don't remember where she was the West Indies or something. And so the family sent the nephew to help her, right? To help her out. And there are the two of them there, and they fell in love, and they got married. Right, so that, that's what he was. He was her nephew by marriage. He was nephew. He was other. She was married to his uncle, right? She was married to his uncle, and 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 they got married, and they had Pissarro. Anyway, and actually, his son fell in love with an Orthodox girl, and he was gonna convert. And Pissarro was like, "No way!" And he took them both like away and had them marry like without converting. I, I'm way too much into this guy's life, but yeah, sorry. I, I've never heard of this. <laughs> I went to a really good Pissarro exhibit. <laughs> anyway, Pissarro, Camille Pissarro, the artist. He's like does some pointless type stuff. He's like he's like a he's one of the impressionists. He was one of the impressionists. P i p i s s a r o. He's really good. He really is good. Yeah. Anyway, okay, back to the watchers, guys. I'm sorry. I, watchers, watchers. Right. It's not in the Alcuchimoni. Watchers. There is no. As compared to not eating of the tree, there is no God never gave him a commandment to the to the angels not to. Uh, they're angels. They're, you, you, we don't know what commandments they got. They're angels. They're supposed to know. Now wait, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to the explanation of why what they did was a sin. We will get there actually because we're talking about Second Temple literature, which is wordy. And so we're going to get to that. So now, now the giants are going to get punished. How are they punished? Since we are really low on time, I'm just going to summarize. They essentially give them what they need. They send them against each other in battle, right? So that they'll kill each other, 
And the whole point is that the angels have to, the angels who are their parents have to watch them die and then they get punished, right? In other words, yeah, watch your kids who you love. You did this whole thing for this, right? You watch your, your, and when they see the destruction of their beloved ones, find them for 70 generations, okay? Now it sucks to be them. So fine. As, um, Asael is punished, Asael slash Azazel is punished. The giants are punished. The watchers are punished. And after this, Rebirth of the earth is, I, I, this is my title, it's not called that. And all the sons of men shall be righteous, and all the nations shall serve and bless me, and also worship me. This is after the flood, right? And the earth will be cleansed from all corruption, and from all sin, and from all wrath, and from all torment. I will not again send a flood upon it for all generations forever. And in those days I will open the storehouses of blessing which are in heaven, and I may send them down upon the earth, upon the work, and upon the toil of the sons of men. Peace and truth will be united for all the days of eternity, and for all the generations of eternity. What does this sound like? It sounds like the Mabul, but, it, but after the, but the yeah. storehouses of heaven or Volta Shemaim, which is uh, right. But here, some of the storehouses of blessing. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's using the same term. Well, yeah, okay. So Afterwards, you, I'll do the same thing with blessing. Right, with right, blessing. right. And but what's weird about this passage being right after the flood? It sounds like the messianic. Era. It sounds like I meant the messianic age, right? It sounds like the messianic age, and probably what the author is doing is he's drawing kind of this parallel. Right? We're supposed to see the flood as the apocalypse that's coming, and this afterwards is going to be this wonderful age. The idea is that flood cleans everything out, cleans out all the sin, the bad knowledge, and after that, everyone's going to be righteous forever. Even though it doesn't quite fit in context. After the flood, that's ridiculous to say no one ever sinned after the flood. Now, I'm going to skip... How, how do we understand that? I mean, how, why would they write that? Uh, the only possible explanation is the author either meant to draw power or something got carried away with this idea of the earth being cleansed of sin, and after that everything's going to be wonderful, and everyone's going to be righteous. But it's, it's the same reason why is Noah this important figure in the Second Temple period? They're seeing him as kind of this messianic figure. And I think for the same reason, I think people perhaps saw the uh, flood and its aftermath in a parallel with what was going to happen, right, in the future, the future apocalypse, apocalyptic age, and the righteous age that would follow. But it's still a puzzle. It is a puzzle. Okay, so, and then what happens are the watchers go to Enoch, he's a scribe, and they say to Enoch, okay, can you be like our lawyer? Okay, we'll send you with a petition to heaven. This is how he gets to go up to heaven, right? Because the, why, do the, why do the angels take him to heaven? Because they need him to argue for them. He's a scribe, and so he, he and some, some say that this is what this is doing is it's actually paralleling a specific role that there was of a, of a type of a scribe who would represent someone's argument in court or represent someone's petition. So, um, so Hanuk, he goes... Hanukkah is a scribe. So Hanukkah is a scribe, yes. And he is sent, and that's a general idea about Hanukkah, that he's a scribe, that's why he writes all these books, right? So he's a scribe, they send him up to argue, to bring their petition to God without success, Right? And he answered me and said to me with his voice, Here, do not be afraid, Enoch, you righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Come hither and hear my voice. And go say to the watchers of heaven who sent you to petition on their behalf, you ought to petition on behalf of men, not men on behalf of you. Remember when we said that the job of angels is to bring prayers to God, right? So th that's your job was to bring petitions for men. Instead, you're asking a man to bring petitions of you. You know, you're, you're, it's really chutzpahdik. Why have you left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and lain with the women and become unclean with the daughters of men and taken wives to yourself and done as the sons of the earth and begotten giant sons? And you were spiritual, holy, living an eternal life, but you became unclean upon the women and begat children through the blood of flesh and lusted after the blood of men and produced flesh and blood 
know the theme, as they do who die and are destroyed. And for this reason, I gave them wives, namely that they might sow seed in them and that children might be born by them, that thus deeds might be done on the earth. But you formerly were spiritual, living an eternal immortal life for all the generations of the world. For this reason, I did not arrange wives for you, because the dwelling of the spiritual ones is in heaven. In other words, you guys live forever. You don't need kids. People need kids because they die, right? Nothing would get happen if they didn't have kids, right? But so you messed up everything, right? You were supposed to stay in heaven. You were supposed to be spiritual. You were supposed to be immortal. And instead, you went and you messed in physicality, and you had children that you weren't supposed to have. So now, what are the consequences? And now, and this is the first time we hear of ongoing consequences. Note that before, and this is probably is also another two different traditions, like before the giants were killed, we have this wonderful new rebirth, no one's going to sin ever again. Very different story now. What happens to the giants? And now the giants who were born from spirits and flesh will be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth will be their dwelling. And evil spirits came out from their flesh because from above they were created. From the holy watchers was their origin and first foundation. Evil spirits they will be on the earth and spirits the evil ones they will be called. And the dwelling of the spirits of heaven is in heaven, but the dwelling of the spirits of earth who were born on the earth is on earth. Let me explain this for a second. What's the story with these giants? They're part angel and part human, okay? The angel part can't be destroyed, right? Because it's spiritual, right? The human part binds them to earth, all right? So they're their 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 bodies are gone, right? But now they're spirits and they're evil spirits who are bound to earth. All right. Now what are they going to do? Evil spirits they will be on the earth, and spirits of the evil ones they will be called. The dwelling of the spirits of heaven is in heaven, but the dwelling of the spirits of earth who were born on the earth is on earth. Right now they're tied forever to earth. And the spirits of the giants which do wrong and are corrupt and attack and fight and break on the earth and cause sorrow. And they eat no food and do not thirst and are not observed. And these spirits will rise against the sons of men and against the women because they came out from them. In the days of slaughter and destruction and the death of the giants, wherever the spirits have gone out from their bodies, their flesh shall be destroyed before the judgment. Thus they will be destroyed until the day of the great consummation is accomplished upon the great age. Okay, what upon the watchers and the pious ones. In other words, their bodies are destroyed now, right? But these spirits are going to continue until the final age. Until this final apocalyptic age is going to get rid of all evil, then it's going to get rid of these spirits. Okay? So this is the opposite of of the messianic This is absolutely the opposite, right? On the contrary, what does this explain? Remember, like in Jubilees, what does this explain? Evil in the world. Evil. Where does evil come from? Where does evil come from? Evil comes from this big sin of the angels. So this big sin of the angels is what causes sin and disaster. Now, it's not clear from here. Is sin included in this? Because here, it seems more like um, physical evil. It depends how you read some of the, what does it mean which do wrong and are corrupt and attack and fight? What does that mean? Does it mean that they just like kill people or does it mean that they actually cause them to sin? In Jubilees, it's very clear that they cause them to (coughs) sin. Here, it's not quite as clear. Here it sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. And the idea seems to be, again, um, here and here and now to the watchers who sent you to petition on their behalf, who were formerly in heaven, and now say, you were in heaven, but its secrets had not yet been revealed to you, and a worthless mystery you knew. This you made known to the women in the hardness of your hearts. In other words, the secret that you gave the women was not a real secret, right? And through this mystery, the women and the men caused evil to increase on the earth. Now, this is a different reason that there's evil. The reason for the evil is this knowledge that was made known. In other words, again, we have those two traditions. One, that evil's coming from the mating, and another, that evil's coming from the secrets that you let, the, the, the knowledge that you gave over. 
say to them, therefore, you will not have peace. Okay. And then I continue, what it continues on is, and they took me to a place where they were like burning fire. And when they wish they made themselves look like men. In other words, after this, Enoch's already up in heaven. So he's already up in heaven, giving the tour. Right. And he gets a whole tour of all these different places in heaven. This is where this happens. This is where that happens. This is where the angels can do this. So I just gave you a couple of verses here so you could see how it continues. Right. And that's pretty much the way it continues through to the end for the most part. OK, so here we see the story of the watchers that becomes really, really central in the way people in the Second Temple period view sin. It's not the only way to view sin. And there are places where it's projected. So in our next class, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring examples of how this story uh, continued and was interpreted, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? And then we'll come back to Enoch, okay? Because I don't want to leave the watchers completely. So we'll continue with that. We'll go back to Jubilees for a bit to see how Jubilees does it, because when we did Jubilees last week, we weren't as familiar with the watcher story. So, and, and also last week, I wanted to give you an overview of Jubilees as opposed to sinking into the Watcher story. So we'll look at Jubilees, we'll look in, in the Watcher story, and we'll look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we see in, in prayers, what we see in the Damascus document, what we see both in the rejection of this story and in the acceptance of this story. Any questions? Is it fair to say that the, I guess, mostly Christian concept of original sin begun getting in the Garden of Eden is at odds with the story? Yes. So the, the Christian concept of the beginning of the Garden of Eden is not completely missing from early Jewish literature. Let me tell you where it mainly is. There's a hint of it in Ben Sira. When we get to Ben Sira, we'll look at it. In Ben Sira, he has this, he's talking about the wicked woman. And he says, from the woman was the beginning of evil, I think is, is, the, is the line. And he seems to be hinting to that idea. He seems to be hinting to it. That's the only one during the Second Temple period. Then we have two books written very shortly after the destruction of the Second Temple, Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch, which both almost take this idea for granted. Second Baruch argues with it. Second Baruch says, don't say from Adam. He, also, he borrows from it and uses it. He, he argues with it and uses it. But where he argues with it, he says, don't say from Adam is my sin. Each one of us is his own Adam. I love that line. And in and fourth Ezra, in fourth Ezra, Ezra continually comes back to this idea <coughs> that how can we fight the inevitability of sin since we inherited the evil heart from Adam? It's not always clear whether this, uh, and it actually, he actually seems to contradict himself. It doesn't seem like the author cares which way Adam got it. Like, did he get it by eating the fruit or did he have it and that's why he ate the fruit, right? So there are two different passages. Each one seems to reflect the other idea, right? He doesn't seem to care how he got it, but the idea is that we inherited this evil heart from Adam and even the law is not enough is not enough to fight it. And that's a, a central idea in 4th Ezra. So we see that, and of course, Paul is actually a Jew living in the Second Temple period, and Paul likes this idea, right, of, of, of the sin, of the, um, the origin of sin being Adam and Eve. Of course, he needs that. He needs a an original sin to be wiped out, right, by Jesus, right? So he needs something that's going to be, like, taken away. But he's not coming up with it out of nowhere. Right? Clearly, there are some Jews who think this way or are talking about it. And what's interesting is why does it become so central right after the destruction? I would say possibly as because people need an explanation for this cosmic punishment 
which seems way more than what they deserved. And so they're kind of going back to a cosmic sin. That's a hypothesis. We can talk more about it. We can talk more, we can talk more about it when we get to fourth Ezra and second Baruch. But that's the idea. The idea is the sin is not theirs. And they know this is, and in fact, fourth Ezra begins with Ezra saying, I know we sinned, but these other nations sinned more and they're doing much better than us. Like why, why do we get, because fourth Ezra and fourth Ezra, it places kind of dealing with the second temple's destruction in the mouth of Ezra, who is supposed to be dealing with the first temple's destruction, right? So, no, Ezra's not around during the first temple's destruction, but hey, why not if we're already doing it, right? So Ezra, so Ezra's reacting in this book to the first temple's destruction, and he's like, I don't understand. Yes, we sinned, but the other nations sinned more. The other nations who destroyed us, they sinned more. Why are we getting punished this way, right? And the answer is because there's this, like, cosmic sin forever that they've been doing. And again, Ezra's arguing with the idea that that anyone had any sort of chance. Like, it was so inevitable. What did you think we were going to do? And the angel who's arguing with him is like, hey, we gave you the law. God gave you the law. Isn't that enough? And that, again, is reflecting a very common idea during the Second Temple period, which is that the law is enough to combat sin, both uh, from a, a moralistic standpoint and from a metaphysical standpoint. And metaphysically, the law actually fight sin and fight the forces of evil. What and we're actually gonna, we're going to see that actually next week. What do you mean the law? The Torah. The Torah. The Torah, yeah. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Um, You've been listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.